But if I was doing something, if I was taking some kind of action, any kind of action, it really felt like I was moving through my grief. It was more manageable. It was more bearable. And I started to sort of get a sense of like, oh, this is what it means to grieve. Like when I'm doing something, I, when I'm holding a, a, a ceremony, doing a ritual uh, to honor Ruby and Hart, or, or if I'm just taking a walk with a friend and talking about my grief, talking about Ruby and Hart, I actually felt like, oh, I get it. This is grieving. Hello, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. My guest today, Colin Campbell, is a writer and director for theater and film. He's also written a truly powerful and personal exploration of grief in his book, Finding the Words. In our conversation today, Colin shares his experience of losing both his children, Ruby and Hart, when a drunk driver hit their car and changed a pleasant family outing into the worst day imaginable. He addresses the fear, pain, denial, guilt, rage, despair, and isolation that accompanies grief. You'll also hear us explore the profound power of rituals and the impact of words as we move forward with grief. At the time of our conversation, he was speaking to me from New York as he was wrapping up performances of his own creative response to loss called Grief, a one-man shit show. Well, I am so thrilled to welcome Colin. Welcome you to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, my listeners will know, and the folks who follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW on the socials will know I've been snapping pics of this book, me reading this book, excerpts for the last month or so. Um, so I'm really excited to dive into finding the words. And I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. So um, definitely check that out. Um, if you haven't read it already, um, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you today. We're going to hold space for your, for the wisdom that you shared with us, finding the words. We're going to hold space for Ruby and Hart mm. and their lives, not just um, your loss, mm. um, and explore just some of the wisdom that you and your wife, Gail. I mean, I was just sort of blown away of some of the ways in which you both were full of wisdom and presence, even in the midst of just this tumult that has happened in your life. But I'd love to begin our conversation where I always begin the show, which is inviting you to think about an early memory of loss and mm -hmm. to reflect on how were the adults in your life modeling sort of explicitly or explicitly what grief should look like. Again, for our listeners who are new, I believe we develop grief beliefs. Um, 
early on and sometimes they serve us and sometimes they don't, but most of us don't really know what they are, where they came from. So unpacking mm -hmm. that is a really helpful way for us to decide whether those are, um, you know, are those shoulds useful to us, let's say in our grief. So can you think of an early memory of loss and how, how adults yeah. were showing up or not? Yeah, I, I think I, I describe my family as grief averse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so most of the early memories of, of grief, uh, my grandparents uh, passing away mm. of old age, and uh, we didn't really deal with it on a deep level. Um, there, there were no, uh, funerals. Um, really? so yep, they, they would, they would, my grandparents each would die of old age and I'd get an email from my mother saying that they had passed and, and that was kind of it. So we didn't really hold space for grief and loss in my family. Um, and, uh, and then, then when my father died, um, I think some now it's 16 years ago. Um, uh, we, we, again, <laughs> the plan was to have no plan. So I just got an email, but he, he died after seven years of, of, um, dementia. So it was a prolonged, it wasn't a surprise yeah. that he was going to yeah. pass. It, it, and, it, and it was a, it was, it was a blessing in the sense that, you know, his mind was really, really gone. Um, and that was very, very hard for all of us, especially for my mother taking care of him. But, um, but still just the email went out <laughs> and then I jumped on the phone. And now I'm an adult with children of my own. And I'm saying yeah. to my mother, we're coming to you right now. And she's like, no, 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 it's just too much trouble. Um, and so uh, Gail and I and Ruby and Hart, we all flew across the country to Maine and with, met my brother and sister there. And we, and we had our own sort of wake uh, with, with a slideshow and talked about my father. And then, and then when it came time for a funeral, once again, there wasn't going to be one. And I said, no, 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 we're going to have a funeral. <laughs> so, so that my earliest memories were basically of a, of avoidance yeah. of grief. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I think that's a pretty common experience for so many people. Mm -hmm. Again, I think, especially in Western culture, I would say is avoidance of the topic. I've not heard that many of even avoidance of the funeral, although like when it's a loss, when a kid, a lot of times, you know, adults make the choice not to allow the children to attend, Right, um, I've heard that a lot. you know, it was, has happened a lot. Um, and I think, you know, your story, like so many others that are similar to that, are an example of people don't even have to say something explicitly to teach us something about grief. That we learn grief is something we don't talk about. Grief is something we don't make a big deal about. The person who's at the center of grief shouldn't expect people to come pay attention to them. You know, these are the lessons we're learning, even though no one ever said, don't talk about grief or you shouldn't be sad, you know? Right, um, right. So it's interesting because... And I don't know what other losses you experienced before the, the profound loss we'll explore today and the wisdom that you shared with us in the book um, is that it seems to me from the outside as the reader of your words and your wisdom that you and Gail found quickly a way to be very present, 
I would say you were very on the opposite of grief averse. Um, <laughs> yes, not not yes. just for yourself, but also the ways in which you really embraced community and ritual, and welcomed and invited people in. And so, um, just an interesting sort of maybe dichotomy from from what you learned to sort of where you showed up. And yeah, so. You shared in your book and you've shared publicly. I, I want to remember to talk about your one man show. So let's make sure we come <laughs> back to that. You hold me accountable to that. In finding the words, you shared the story um, of the crash that killed your children, your teenagers, Ruby and Hart. Mm. Um, and I loved how much you shared about their personality and their wisdom and their <laughs> creativity and their art. And I mean, in this book, I feel like we really got to have a sense of their life, which I know is really important to you and how you grieve. Yeah. So as I always invite guests to share a little bit, if they like, about sort of the profound loss that brought them to be having a conversation today with the caveat that it's always up to us as the griever to share details or not details. That's our agency. That's our capacity. But if there's mm -hmm. something you want to share or how you want to talk a little bit about the loss that you and Gail, your wife, experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me in such a <laughs> structured way or safe, safe way. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable talking about it all. Um, Cause as you mentioned, I have a solo show where I also get, yes. get into quite a, a certain amount of detail over all sorts of things. But um, uh, yeah, we were driving to Joshua tree. It's a, it's a small town in the high desert, two and a half hours East of Los Angeles, uh, the four of us, me, Gail, um, Ruby and Hart in the back seat. And we were struck by a drunken high driver going 90 miles an hour. And, uh, and through the police reports, uh, and analysis, we, we discovered that she never even touched the brakes. Um, she literally slammed into us full speed, uh, because she was so drunk and high. Um, and, uh, and Ruby and Hart were in the back seat and they were, they were killed. Um, and, uh, it was a beautiful day before that. It was, it was sort of almost like, like the high point of our family life. We had just on a whim you know, purchased this vacation home in Joshua Tree. It's a place we've gone to our whole, all of Ruby and Hart's lives over and over again. We went there and this spectacular rocks for climbing, for scrambling. We used to call it rock scrambling. And we would just go up there and just scramble in the rocks and get lost and then find our way back and, we had so many beautiful adventures and all four of us loved it so much. And then just on a whim, we were like, what if we bought a place out here? How crazy would that be? Could we really do that? Can we afford to do this? Yeah. And, and then we literally looked at two houses. One was, was awful. <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> nope, we're not buying that. And then the second house, we're like, this is fantastic. We'll take it. And that was it. Just all in one afternoon. Um, and it was such a spontaneous crazy thing. And we were all so delighted, you know, like, Oh my yeah. God. And so we were going back out there three days later, um, to, uh, I was actually going to meet with somebody to possibly build a pool and Ruby had picked the perfect spot for the pool. And, uh, and we were just like a high point in our life. We were all just yeah. so thrilled and excited about what the future would bring. And then that was all stolen away from us. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can speak for the listeners. I'll say for myself, I, I'm holding you in my heart and Gail mm. and Ruby and Hart and the, the 
way I'm just sort of at a I'm at a loss for words but really just the <laughs> the intersection of how we can have these moments of sort of pinnacle joy and these moments of sort of terror and loss you know intertwined and we we mm. can't see them coming and I think that story really helps us understand um how that can happen and how by the way how much we can appreciate then any sort of moment of joy or grace that we have because right right that we don't know yeah. they're coming yeah, let, let's enjoy them while we got them, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have tried to live that way most of my life. So definitely when my young husband died, I sort of picked that up with a new mantle. And then I had a close friend die a few years after that and picked, you know, sort of, I keep trying. And now I'm, um, the listeners might know I'm in the midst of um, dealing with breast cancer. So it was, it's another invitation from whoever the universe to, uh -huh. to be present to this joy. But um Colin, I really appreciated the way that you intertwined your own story kind of right from the beginning, sort of walking us through the accident to the kind of, you know, shock and disbelief that we all experience in the face of profound loss. Yeah. And, and quite beautifully invited us and called us all to task to this notion that while everybody's grief experience is unique, that notion can cause problems because it makes us feel like, well, then I can't possibly have anything to contribute or support because mm -hmm. I couldn't possibly understand you. Why was it important for you to talk about kind of squashing that a little bit and talk <laughs> about finding the words? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I encountered over and over again was this notion of everyone grieves in their own way. Yeah. That's what you're, what you're alluding to. And it, almost everybody said it, you know, therapists, grief books, grief counselors, other mourners, other random people, they all just want to tell you yeah. everyone grieves in their own way. And it's all meant in, for a very positive reason, right? That they say it, you know, out of love and, and care because, because it, they don't want you to be judging yourself in your grief. And that happens. Yeah. We all are going to judge ourselves as we grieve. It's, that's un unfortunately, <laughs> uh, you know, inevitable. And so I understand, I appreciate that impulse, right? Like, yeah, let's, Let's encourage grievers to not judge themselves. But what what that phrase did to me was it 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 didn't help me because the idea that we all grieve in our own way kind of means you're on your own. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> because who knows what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah. And and in a way, because my loss was on, on a certain level so catastrophic, right? Sudden loss of two all my all my children, right? Two two yeah. teenage children. I didn't need permission to grieve. I was like, I get it. I, I got I get, this. I, I get that I'm allowed to grieve. But then I wanted guidance. Like, what is this? How? What does it mean to grieve? What am I actually doing? And at one point, Gail and I, we stumbled out of our, our first grief group. We went to grief group a little too early. It was like two weeks after the crash, maybe three weeks. Um, it was just a little too early for us. We just weren't quite emotionally ready. And we stumbled out of the meeting and Gail is weeping and keening. And she says, um, how are we going to live? What are we going to do? Yeah. And that thought of like, yeah, what are we going to do? Like, what do you do in grief? And I think my, my earlier conception of it in my, in my ignorance was that you grieve all by yourself and you just kind of feel sad. That's what grieving is. You just feel sad until you're somehow fixed and then you come back to society. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, I found 
whenever I was just sort of just being sad, I, I didn't feel like I was moving through my grief. I felt stuck. I felt stuck and squashed. I felt the weight of my grief felt endless and amorphous, and, you know, this shapeless thing that I was stuck in. But if I was doing something, if I was taking some kind of action, any kind of action, it really felt like I was moving through my grief. It was more manageable. It was more bearable. And I started to sort of get a sense of like, oh, this is what it means to grieve. Like when I'm doing something, I, when I'm holding a, a, a ceremony, doing a ritual uh, to honor Ruby and Hart, or, or if I'm just taking a walk with a friend and talking about my grief, yeah. talking about Ruby and Hart, I actually felt like, oh, I get it. This is grieving. And a lot of those lessons came to me through the Jewish traditions, which I, I yeah. talk a, a quite yeah. a lot in my book. So for, for your listeners, I'm not Jewish, Colin Campbell. <laughs> this is not <laughs> a Jewish name. Surprise, surprise. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but my wife is Jewish and, uh, and we raised our kids as Jews. So Ruben and Hart were barn bat mitzvahed and we were active members of our temple. Um, and it meant a lot to me. We, we, we celebrated all the Jewish holidays and, um, and found real community there. And then when they were killed, uh, my temple, which is, it's called Ikar in, in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful, very socially active um, uh, a, a temple dedicated to social justice, really. Yeah. Um, it's a, a beautiful space uh, of people. And they, they rallied to our side in, a, in an extraordinary way. Um, yeah. and, and, my, and my all the rabbis, honestly, um, and especially Sharon Browse, the, the, the head rabbi, um, really came to our aid. And I learned all these lessons about grieving. Because again, I, I come from a background that we didn't really grieve. We didn't really right. do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so now I really had to. There was no question. Like yeah. it was life or death. It was sanity or insanity for me, right? And you the were, seeking, were really some, and seeking some guidance, right? Because yes, that is yes. the, the flip side of, and I'm a, I've said those words myself and professionally and personally too around more around the permission giving that like, if right. you're sad today or angry at the happy looking couple, that's, you know, like that's normal, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Right. And right. I hear that we, I think grief is so inherently isolating self. We lose sense of ourself. We lose sense of our identity in the world. It's already such an isolating thing. So then to say every grief journey is unique or everybody does it different, as you said, makes you feel like you're sinking more and more into this abyss yeah, you know, sort alone. of lost, lost without a map. And, and work. I want to dive into the rituals. Um, actually, reading this book really made me really rethink the lack of rituals that I've had in my own grief past. Mm. I come from a Jewish dad and a Presbyterian mom, neither of whom practice any religion. So I, we came from no, you know, like <laughs> there could have been some rituals offered, but there were, wasn't. So I really want to dive into that because I think, yeah. Um, some of the things you talked about, Shiva and others. Um, in fact, there's a passage I was going to read. I was going to read a little bit that I thought you um, you spoke. Um, one of the chapters in your books really is about rituals, period, and about what you all walked through. But you also bring forward the story of several of your friends who have experienced different kinds of losses in their own lives and the way they had uh, ritual they found ritual and found meaning, but you said grief leaves us feeling out of control and powerless. We couldn't prevent our loved one from dying. 
So taking action by planning and carrying out our rituals to honor the deceased is a way to give agency back to ourselves. Rituals are a way of giving structure and organization to the days and months and years ahead. Mm. And can you talk a little bit for, for those people who aren't part of a congregation or aren't part of a temple and maybe make ritual more accessible to all those of us who aren't yeah. sort of part of some organized, what do you know about to be true about rituals? You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Colin explains that even though he considers himself an atheist, he's found so much value and healing in rituals. He has leaned on Jewish traditions, but he reminds us all that rituals don't have to be related to organized religion to be beneficial in our grieving. Are you looking for more grief support in your life? Do you want a friendly and understanding voice in your inbox? Maybe some behind-the-scenes scoop on this show, information about the book that I'm writing coming out in 2024, or even thoughts on what I'm currently reading? Would you like to know about the services I offer? Well, I've got you covered. Sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakiefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why do I call it not so regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. I am so fortunate to have so many incredible guests coming your way still this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. After the show, head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and hit the subscribe button. Oh, and while you're there, if you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. Also, a simple and meaningful gesture of grief support would be sharing the show with someone in your life who might need it too. If you do it on social media, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW or use the hashtag grief is a sneaky bitch. Yeah. Um, well, well, first of all, I would do want to stress. So, so, so I'm an atheist. Yeah. I'm not Jewish. Yeah. And so when I, I approached all of these rituals, it wasn't like, you know, oh, this Jewish tradition that's so foreign and yeah. I have no way in. I was looking at it like the practical, like, yeah. <laughs> how does like, this work? What, how will this, you yeah. know, how does this support me and serve if me? It's yeah. not about God for me. So what is it about? And then, oh, oh, I see <laughs> all these valuable lessons about how to grieve. So I really feel yeah. like even though I'm drawing them all from the Jewish traditions, they're really open to anybody because yes. yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah. need to even believe in God um, or be Jewish. But but the ideas of holding space with a community yeah. for grief is so powerful. Um, and one of the one of the first and most important rituals that I learned from the Jewish tradition is is marking the end of Shloshim. So Shloshim means thirty; it's the first thirty days after the funeral. And uh, so in the Jewish tradition, you, you mark the first seven days. Uh, that's that's sh sitting Shiva. That's super intense. Then the first 30 days is like really intense, but not as intense. <laughs> and then you're moving into a new phase of grief. So they're kind of marking how you move through grief. And to mark the end of Shoshim, you're supposed to have a ceremony, but they don't tell you how or what. There's no real guidelines, but you're supposed to mark it. 
And in a way, that was a real gift to Gail and I because we were like, oh, so we have to create our own ceremony. That's our job. <laughs> make mm -hmm. one up. Yeah. And that really empowered us because we were like, we can do this. We can make up our own ceremonies. And and it makes you think, well, what? how would I want to honor Ruby and Hart? And how would I want to hold space for my grief with my community? And we designed our own ritual. So our ritual was we went to the Los Angeles Arboretum. It's a, a beautiful park outside of Los Angeles where Ruby and Hart and Gail and I spent many, many afternoons their whole lives. So many beautiful memories there. And so we're like, well, the kids would want it to be here. And then we picked these two trees, these spectacular Engelman, Engelman oaks, that these old trees and their, their branches were intertwined, these two trees, as if they were like hugging each other. It was like, oh, that's Ruby and Hart. <laughs> so we dedicated those two trees to Ruby and Hart. They're there. They've got plaques on them. Um, and then we invited about 80 friends, uh, our friends and Ruby and Hart's friends, and they all came out. We pilgrimaged out to this place. We made a circle and our rabbi came and someone sang a song and Gail and I told Ruby and Hart stories. Other people shared other stories. We cried together. We held space and it was so powerful and meaningful and it taught us we can do it ourselves. So anytime, anytime we're feeling disconnected from our community, disconnected from our grief, we can always just have a ritual. We can make something up. Yeah. Um, and there's, and there's such, I mean, there's an opportunity to connect with your lost loved one. There's an opportunity to be in community again, to like pull yourselves out from that sense of isolation. Yeah. Um, and you know, one thing I think sometimes people shy away from rituals from is this notion that that's going to make me more sad Right. Right. And like, right. and so I know you talked about that. Why, why do you think maybe the opposite is true or, or. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm quite convinced the opposite is true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because from, I've done many rituals and after yeah. every one, I, I am, I, of course I feel pain and grief during, yeah. right. I'm yeah. thinking about Ruby and Hart and my loss, yeah. but that's my reality. I, yeah. my children are dead, so I'm going to feel pain. That's how yeah. it works. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. The pain comes from love. And when I do a ritual, at the end of it, I feel I feel better. I feel stronger. I feel more more present in this life. So yeah. it, that's the I think the interesting contradiction I, I think, which is you 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 would assume if I'm holding a ceremony about Ruby and Hart, that means I'm more stuck in the past, living in right? the past, right? Yeah, I'm living in the past, but actually, no, it's allowing me to live in the present. I'm taking Ruby and Hart and their memories and bring them with me here to the right now, the present. Yeah. Rather than being stuck in in this again amorphous blob of grief, yeah, um, and uh, and it allows me to feel like agency, like like the the passage that you read, agency. Yeah. I, I think it's yeah. so important in grief or any trauma, actually, any yeah. trauma that we take some kind of action, um, so that we're not the victims of it. We are we're our own. We have our own agency through it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, and, and for those of you listening who might can't imagine sort of a large ceremony, I, as you said, it can be a walk and a talk with a friend. It can be yeah. sitting in the favorite park and writing in your own journal. It doesn't have to be necessarily a ceremony. And yeah. um, even when the tears flow, which as you talked about, like tears are actually making space, right? For, for their life, we can bring their lives. That's been my experience is I get to bring for instance, you know, when I've 
feeling that it'll be 12 years this summer since my husband passed. And every mm-hmm. time I have some small um, ritual with when I bring, I get to feel like I get to bring him forward even further into this life and, and yeah. moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, but it does. I, I can understand why people feel some hesitancy. And my daughter was seven when he passed. And I had a lot of concerns that like she really resisted ritual, whereas I really wanted ritual. So I also want to honor in that way, not to undo that every grief is unique, but everybody's <laughs> interests may be different. Mm-hmm. So you might yeah. want a certain kind of ritual that somebody else isn't ready for. And right. that doesn't mean they're grieving the right or the wrong way. That's just maybe that's the space I've come to. But I gather that you and Gail we're kind of on the same page quite yeah. along the way in terms of ritual and remembrance. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we were, we were on the, on the same page throughout. Um, occasionally we would, you know, be in a, a different emotional state. Like of maybe course. one of us would just feel so much despair one day while the other person yeah. was feeling a little bit of hope and then, then it would switch <laughs> yeah. and that would be yeah. kind of nice because we both weren't in despair. Right. Right. Um, right. But um, but in general, she and I are, were uh, really in sync about our thoughts. And I think what helped us be that way is because we talked about it. Um, yeah. We both we both experienced Shiva, the power of talking about Ruby and Heart and our grief to our community. And and we both learned those lessons very quickly of like, this is a necessity. We need to talk about what's happening because it's so incomprehensible. There's so much denial. It's it's so hard. It's so hard to believe right. when a loved so one putting dies it into, suddenly. And so putting it to words over and over again is like starting to comprehend the incomprehensible is really kind of that. Yeah. Inclu- words and rituals and actions. It's not always necessarily speaking. Yeah. Right. Right. Or even art form. Or art. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. You're or, yeah. You know, one of the, th- that sort of brings me to one of the things that I so appreciated throughout the book. You sort of have a little section on something you call the grief, get your grief spiel together is what you called it. <laughs> but I found that you shared this throughout the book, the ways in which you and Gail, who are both, by the way, writers, right? So you have a little bit that going for you. You're, you're a r- professional writer. She's a writer. I know at the time, I think she was writing for the show Blackish. So you have that going for you, but you don't need to be a professional writer. One of the things that I appreciate the way is how, and I don't know if it was a struggle, I'm curious, but you each seem to be able to articulate directly to the people in your lives, how Mm -hmm. you wanted them to show up for you and not show up for you. And what Mm -hmm. was meaningful and valuable and heartwarming and what was triggering or problematic. I remember she wrote a letter to the entire cast and crew of the show before she returned or an email, yeah. kind of letting them know and what she was hoping to receive when she got there. You all did that with your family. Can you tell us about how you, how, cause not everybody could even know what they needed, let alone have the right. whatever to communicate it to the community of people. Yeah, it's it's not it's not always clear what we want or need in grief for and sure. And it changes. And it and changes. That's absolute changes can change hour to hour, honestly. <laughs> and it, and I think it is it does take a certain amount of effort. And I can I can I'll mention a, a, one of the emails we sent where we really struggled to find out what we actually wanted because we weren't so clear. But the but the early times I think there was um you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of um maybe social anxiety or social awkwardness about telling people what you need. Right. And I think because Gail and I were in such 
traumatic pain, the idea of a little bit of extra social discomfort didn't seem to matter so much. Like, you know too what I bad. Mean? We're, yeah, yeah, like this this might be awkward. Oh well, <laughs> we're in yeah. so much pain right now. A little bit extra awkwardness. If it's going to possibly reduce our suffering, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> I'm just yeah. gonna tell you. And if it's offended, if you know you're offended or whatever, it's, I, that's okay. <laughs> it's all right. And not my and, problem. Uh, yeah. Not my not really my problem. And and what and I think what allowed us to keep developing it was because right away we got such positive feedback. There were people who loved us who were desperate to help us and did not know how. And anything we told them, they were like, "Oh, thank you, thank you for saying that. Thank you for telling me. I had no idea. That's so helpful. I was terrified of." mentioning Ruby and Hart's names. And now you're telling me you want me to. Oh, thank God. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Of course, I'll tell you a story about Ruby and Hart, you know? Um, and I know that my friends and family are particularly loving and not everybody in grief has loving friends and family. And sometimes they're not going to give you what you need. Um, and, and, and I, um, I understand that I'm privileged in that. And, uh, and I would encourage those people who just, who try to tell people what they need and then they still get rebuffed to maybe find new people, you know, <laughs> go to grief, grief groups, yeah. um, find other people who understand grief more uh, and find a, find a, a further community. But, um, uh, but I also say, I would also suggest that people to try again, because a lot of times friends, they, you know, you tell them what, what you need and they're like, okay, great, great. And then they still don't because they're fall still scared. Their... Yeah. They fall yeah. right back in because it's so, culturally programmed to avoid grief it's we're we're taught that on like you said like somehow not even verbally we're just yeah no, shown it's implicit it's, just it's implicit. implicit yeah and i think of all the movies and tv shows that i i watch about grief so often the character in in really traumatic grief just goes away they don't exactly. talk about it and they yell at people if they dare to mention their loved one's name. Like, don't you talk about that person? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? Who is this? Who's this person yeah. yelling? It was at not. People? It was not written by somebody who has actually experienced grief. Exactly. That is for dang sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so that's where we're getting all these messages. Um, so, uh, so, but the, the one we don't we weren't always so facile with our words. <laughs> so there was a friend of ours, a very dear friend of ours, and I talk about it in the book that she. She would. She's she's a marvelous human being, and so generous and wonderful. And she's also a, a good writer herself. And so she would, she would, she would come to us, and then she would sort of narrate what she imagined we were feeling, as a way to I think to connect with us and and yeah. and to to show how deeply she was thinking about us and caring for us. But the problem was it really upset Gail and I. It was like stop, stop telling us how we feel. <laughs> Yeah. You're doing a great job, but I don't like it. <laughs> and we yeah. couldn't, we couldn't articulate what the problem was because we understood. But you left that, the encounter feeling right. agitated, and yes, there was just something yes. off about it. Okay, yeah. And we're like, we we can't stand this. We can't say this happening over and over again. But we we don't know how to tell her. It's so confusing. What are we going to say to her? Stop, stop telling us how we feel. That seems so weird. But but at a certain point, we said we we have to. We have to do this. We have to figure out what to write her. So we sat down and we carefully wrote. First, we said, let's take a walk to our friend. Let's take a walk tomorrow morning. And then we wrote this email and said, on the walk tomorrow, the reason we want to talk, take a walk with you is because, and we and I say it in the book, you know, yeah. we, we took our best stab at trying, trying to explain what she was doing that was upsetting us. The idea that yeah. she was narrating our pain, 
instead of just asking us how we feel. And it seems so sort of small, but it meant so much to us. And we sent the email to her and she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I've done this. Um, and I've never walked with somebody who suffered this, this loss. And I don't know what to do. And of course, I'll fall on my face and thank you for helping me. Mm. And she said in person, she said, you know, I, I know, because she's very smart, she said, I know what it took to send that email. Yeah. I know that you you could have just easily written me off. And instead, you trusted, you valued our friendship enough to take the time to write that email. Yeah. And she was so right. It was so true. We were about to write her off. And then yeah. we were like, we can't. She means too much to us. Um. And so it's not always easy to say what we need or even know what we need, but, yeah. but trying is so much better than not. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, staying in and community. Staying in community, staying in clarity. And also it was, you know, it was a task for you, but it caused both you and Gail to really sit with and be curious about what isn't sitting right. Why isn't this encounter helpful? I talk about yeah. this often with people. It's just like, Unfortunately, that is the work for us is to sort of figure that out because otherwise we end up getting in those situations over and over again. And the grief support or the help that we thought we were seeking becomes, you know, then we become for, further isolated. So right. I appreciate that. Right. And, the, and, you know, to your point, I think for those of you who are the griever who are thinking about who maybe can relate to an experience and are thinking about trying to write your own grief spiel and share it with somebody, or if you're the friend who doesn't know how to show up is we have to stop believing that this is a burden to the grief supporter or that we mm -hmm. are attacking them. As you said, most people who love and care about you are going to receive that with a, oh my gosh, thank you for giving me some kind of roadmap or some kind of way in because we're all so desperately, you know, concern that we're going to say the wrong thing. So it's actually yeah. a gift that the griever gives to those around them. That's how I see it. Yeah. I, I, I really, we've experienced that. I, I believe that I occasionally encounter people who are like, my friends aren't as, aren't as nice as yours, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I kind of feel like friends are friends and they, they want to do the right thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm I really so lucky, too. but um, yeah, I, I think it's always worth it to try to try to connect um, and try to express our needs. Yeah. yeah. And which, you know, will show up at different times for each of us in our grieving, you know, in the times of our grieving. So, you know, in the early day or week or month, maybe that isn't accessible to you and you don't know how to communicate that. And, and that's okay too. And, but yeah. to be giving yourselves for all of us to give ourselves sort of permission and the invitation that this is actually a gift, not just to us, but a gift to those who want to show up for us, I think is, is important. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it, it helped me, to, to remember just how, you know, quote unquote, bad I was at grief. Like I would definitely have not done the helpful thing to somebody in grief. I did not yeah. in my past yeah. life. I was yeah. not, I was scared of grief. I was scared of it. Um, and it felt overwhelming and I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be emotionally sitting in grief. It was uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I have a lot of empathy for people who, who find me to be uncomfortable because yeah. I was them and, I was them times 10. So um, I think that also helps me to have, you know, compassion towards my friends who, who are, who struggle, who struggle yeah. to how to deal with me. Yeah. 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 Well, that's really beautiful and, 
and gracious. And yes, I think we've all been that person. I do this for a living. I have a show. I write a book, you know, like, and I still sometimes miss the mark. And it's, it's because we all revert a lot to our original sort of grief belief programmings of grief avoidance. Um, and also the people that the more we love someone, the harder it is mm-hmm. to show up and hold space and bear witness without wanting to fix, which of course we can't, right. you know, which right. is our impulse, right? And culturally and all kinds of reasons we want to fix them and we can't. And so it's yeah. almost harder the closer we are to somebody, I think, in a way, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we feel a sense of responsibility and our love for that person and to see someone we love suffering so much just feels we feel our own out of controlness. So then we try to act with agency to fix them, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's just not what the griever needs. Yeah. I think that's such an important message to get out is that you don't try and fix their grief. No, no. <laughs> that is not going to work because any words of quote unquote comfort you give are going to backfire because that any words of comfort are trying to stop the pain and you know, yeah. <laughs> they're in pain and that's okay. Cause they just lost someone that was really, really important to them. And that yeah. they're going to experience pain. They just want to be in community with that pain. They don't want you to fix it or take it away or minimize it or, or, you know, numb it with drugs and alcohol. That's not really helpful. No, exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. No, such an important point is, I mean, grief isn't a sign you're broken. You're, it's a normal response to loss and it's not our job to fix it. And any attempt to fix with cliches and platitudes and those sorts of things really tell the griever there's something wrong with you right you know which is yeah. sort of antithetical to what i think we think we're trying to do when we show up in loving grief support and to your yeah. point i i think again not with any malice but i think those acts of fixing or platitudes or sort of comfort are really about alleviating the discomfort for the person offering them mm-hmm. you know it's really more yeah. about like i need to make this somehow okay because this is really uncomfortable so i'm gonna say <laughs> yeah. this thing that might because we all, all of us, even those of us who experience profound, tremendous loss, when we show up for somebody else in their loss, we can't help but see ourselves in their story. And so then we get caught up in our own worries and stuff about it. And so, yes, I appreciate that you said just sort of be with someone in their pain to help them mm-hmm. feel in community, to feel like they have a safe space to experience it because we will move through it because we move through every emotion we've ever had. We've never been stuck (laughs) in a single emotion, even the good ones that we wish we could hang on to. Um, (laughs) So we just need people to accompany us in in that space. Yeah. 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 It helps us to process it. Yeah. People, people we can talk to so we can literally understand our new reality. Yeah. That's why it's so important not to be alone in our grief. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, Colin, you talked a bit in the book about, um, you know, we often use the word healing when we think about trauma, trauma, Mm -hmm. which, and sometimes, and traumatic grief can go hand in hand. Right. And you talked a little bit about how the word healing, I don't know if you would say rubbed you the wrong way. That might not be the right way to say it, but that you, (laughs) that you, but it could, but you couldn't quite like, there was something missing for you about this notion of healing. If it's okay, I'd love to read another passage and then have you help us think about what, what the difference is for you and why you found solace to be Mm -hmm. a word that you can maybe hang on to in a way that helps you move, move forward with your grief. 
You said, I grabbed a hold of the word solace. It made sense to me. Solace doesn't promise ease or comfort. It doesn't imply a process of healing that might eventually be complete. I could get behind seeking solace. To my mind, it didn't suggest that I was trying to get past my pain or escape my pain. It felt like solace meant finding a way to live with the pain without being tortured by it. Solace felt like the opposite of anguish or torment or suffering. I could ache for Ruby and heart, but at the same time, I could also look out over the vast Pacific Ocean and feel some solace within. Oh. I love that. I love that. Uh, the, you read uh, the it so book, beautifully. Yeah. Oh, well, that's <laughs> how I felt when I was uh. reading the book. It just was because I think that distinction is really important. And it really struck a chord for me because even though I've used the word healing a lot, again, personally and professionally in the work that I do, it always mm. feels to me like, again, then we're assigning brokenness to mm. the griever and that we're assigning some, there's some end point to which we will get right. to, which I don't believe I will carry the grief over the death of my husband till my last breath. And yeah. I live yeah. a life full of joy and awe and wonder too. So what, right. what, how did solace come to you and what, what did that mean to you for, yeah. to help you yeah, with so grief? When we come back, Colin explains how and why he feels the word solace resonates more deeply for him as he moves forward with his grief. Like me, he focuses on the impact of our word choices and explains why the word healing doesn't quite fit the mark for his experience of grief, nor his goals for his future. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief-smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note visit www.lisakiefoffer.com. Did you know you can now get all kinds of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch merch from tees and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers? You can find it in my Grief Happens shop. In fact, I love that people have started sharing their pictures with me. So if you pick something up, make sure to take a selfie and tag me on social media at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'll be adding new content to the shop monthly. Next up is a series of merchandise I'm calling Cancer Can Fuck All the Way Off. Shop now for your own Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast merch by visiting www.lisakefauver.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. 
So, so obviously I think words are important. <laughs> the book's called finding the words. I think it's important for, for all of us grievous to find our own words that we, that mean things to us. And, and words have connotations. They have, you know, auxiliary meanings that are personal to us. You know, what, yeah. what, when you hear a word, you get associations in your own mind and, and they're individual. So for me, I, I hear healing. And, and like you said, I, I, I envisioned a process that has an ending and, and then it's healed and it's all done. And I'm like, I'm never going to heal from this. I don't want to heal. I want to have got two holes in my heart. Uh, yeah. and I, I want my heart to grow around them and yeah. get bigger and bigger, but those holes are never going anywhere. Um, yeah. so they're not healing. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so that would, I would, that would rub me the wrong way, as you said. Yeah. Absolutely. And so then I was like, well, well, so I understand that I don't want to suffer. That suffering is, is when I'm, you know, locked in guilt or I'm isolating myself or all the things that are harming me that are interfering with my healthy pain. Yeah. Uh, so if I'm moving away from suffering, what am I moving toward? And I really didn't know. I didn't have a word for it. And then I, I was literally in temple. <laughs> and again, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. I'm an atheist, <laughs> yeah. but I'm following along. <laughs> and, and the rabbi was reading this passage uh, and it mentions uh, God wishing uh, solace to people in mourning. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh, 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 they're talking about me. <laughs> I'm in mourning and solace. And uh, I hadn't, I never thought about that word before. I, obviously I knew the word, but, um, but it hit me in that moment of like, Oh, I, I like that. And, and, and that's where the, the passage that you read was sort of me articulating what it meant to me um, th that, that I, to my mind, it didn't imply there was an end, you know, fixing. It was just in the moment. How am I able to, I guess, Solace for me was sort of like having strength to bear the pain of grief, maybe, or, or, or even just also touching some joy too, like yeah. some solace. As a, you know, there's appreciation of life yeah. um, that doesn't negate the grief. Right? Yeah. It, it's not like I'm compartmentalizing the grief so I can feel joy. It's like I, I, I'm holding joy alongside grief. Yeah. Um, and for me, that was that was that was very helpful. Um, and so I just encourage everybody to you know, find the, the words that, that they feel like articulate where they're at, you know? Yeah. Cause it hel yeah. helps us. I think, I think words help us to literally process to, if you can say it, then you can think it, then you can sort of understand it. And it's not so scary. Absolutely. I feel like I just said this in an interview. I actually just interviewed, um, Rabbi, uh, Steve leader recently. And oh, I, okay. and, yeah. and I was saying, um, and I think this was poet Gregory Orr said words make worlds. Mm. And I really think there is, I also study, I mean, I study narrative therapy in my graduate program. So words also, I mean, narrative is very important to me as well. But I think to your point, some of the language that we have culturally around grief is much of the language of our broader culture, which is very binary. It's very, mm -hmm. you either this, you know, broken, healed, you know, <laughs> happy, sad, you know, one or the other and solace. Yeah. That's why it even resonated for me, even though I've sort of found my way as I really appreciated solace as this word that helps us carry the both and. So that's why I always go around saying my tattoo is really the both and the black band means in memory and the and ampersand is and. 
and the filled in flowers are life. So death and life and that unfilled in flowers are the life interrupted and the life yet to live. So that's, that's what this piece is for those on video watching on video, but anyhow, but, but that both and is something that I think is one of my main sort of messages. And that's why I loved this passage on solace is that Mm. we don't have to choose. And I think we sometimes think if we are sitting in our suffering, that's where we can be in our love. That's where we're honoring the person. Right. Or we are, have to magically get to the someplace where we're just in joy all the time or in happiness <laughs> all the time. And this is not just in grief. We buy into this false myth in our everyday lives. That's why we all over shop and buy products and things that we think are going to right get us somewhere. Um, and so I appreciate the solace of you allowing, you know, you said I can hold Ruby and Hart's loss and their lives and mm. some, and look out over the Pacific ocean and, and, and feel some sense of, you know, presence in this world. So yeah. whatever this, so for hopefully this word solace is a gift to our listeners, but if that isn't the word, I do invite you to think about, what are the words you find yourself saying to people over and over again when you tell the story of your loss or how you're feeling? And are there words that are getting you stuck in some place? Because uh-huh. I do think we can end up telling stories that kind of get us stuck in a place right. and we get kind of caught up into that. And so what words might open your imagination to help you hold the both hand, to help you kind of carry your loss forward? That, yeah. That notion of of the both and, and and what we were talking about before around agency reminds me too. You are a writer, folks. Know, I mean, obviously you're a writer because you wrote this book. But previous to this, you are a writer, essayist, right? Yeah. And you talked a little bit in the book about the lessons of writing this a story around an active protagonist. Yeah. Um, and you even invoked Rilke, which I loved. I just recently invoked, you know, the, let it all happen to you, beauty and terror. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. I love, I lit, I just wrote an essay recently called when everything happens all at once. And I, that, that, um, let everything happen to you, you know, just keep going. Beauty mm-hmm. and terror, just keep going. Um, is really what we need to be in the, be in when we're in those spaces. But, so, and what what does active protagonist mean to you in grief? And what do we all need to know about the role of active protagonist when we think about rebuilding the story, you know, continuing to edit this emerging story of our lives in grief? Yeah. Well, I, it, it came to me because I, I teach screenwriting uh, at Chapman University. And, um, and, uh, and I do talk about um, developing active protagonists. And it, for the very practical reason that in general, an audience is going to care more and be invested more in a character who's making choices, um, who's active in their lives. It's not just a recipient, right? If you have a character, that there are a few notable exceptions, but but in general, um, the characters, the, the the stories, the films that have a character who is making choices is in a way that's how they are, are articulating their character. That's how you see yeah. character. You discover character through the choices they make yeah. in life, in, in their in their story. And so in a way, it, it was like, right, I, I want to be a compelling character. <laughs> I, wanna be, I don't want to be a passive character. I want to be somebody who's making choices, doing yeah. things. Um, and, and then in another level, um, I feel like 
right after the crash, I was a passive character. Yeah. I was the recipient of this terrible event that I was powerless to stop. Uh, and, and I just felt like I was being buffeted by the world. Yeah. And I didn't know how to make any choices. I was just this victim. Um, and it was really a hard place to be. And I discovered that if I, any choices I did start making, uh, was empowering to me. And, and I read this very powerful excerpt. Well, I read the whole book, but, um, the, the body keeps the score. Yeah. Um, and, and in it, he talks about, and I'm going to, I'm going to bungle it now because it's been a while since I read it, but there was a, there was an event where a, a husband and wife were in a car, a horrible, horrible car crash. Um, and they, they saw horrors of people dying in front of their eyes, terrible, terrible ways. And it was multiple, multiple car crash. Um, and the husband was able to get out of the car and the wife was not, she was pinned, uh, in the front seat. And later on, um, she, the wife suffered so much more, uh, PTSD symptoms yeah. and she struggled so much more than the husband and, and, and the author attributes it to the idea that he had agency. He was able to do something. Yeah. He could literally get out of the car. Uh, and that's, that struck a chord with me, that idea of what can we do with our grief? What can we actually do in grief? Um, so we're not just overwhelmed by it, but that we're actually making choices. We're not passively going through our grief and our life. Yeah. <laughs> we are yeah. actively engaging. And I think the idea of engaging in life is also important because it's so hard because after any catastrophic loss, you are inevitably going to feel disconnected to meaning and purpose. Yeah. Like life suddenly will feel like there's no reason. Why am I alive? You know, Ruby and Hart are dead. There's no reason to live. Um, yeah. I think that's true for, for, for most people who suffer what I call a profound loss where, where they feel yeah. a part of them is gone. Um, and, and we have to, in order to get that meaning and purpose back again, I believe it doesn't just come to you. It helps if you start making choices, if you start yeah. saying yes to life, even if you don't feel it. Even if you're like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm done. And you probably won't over. for a while. Yeah, you're going right. to be, you're going to fake it till you make it for a while. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I really feel like faking it till you make it is so helpful in this circumstance because, um, because nobody wants to get out of bed. Um, but getting out of bed is ultimately going to make you feel better and more engaged in life as you start trusting and saying yes to things and doing things. You'll, you'll start to feel more invested in, in, in life, which is great. Yeah. yeah. And that, I think that's Vander Koch or whoever wrote the yes. body keeps score. And that, you know, of course that book is specifically around trauma, but I think the point is so important too. So whether it was a traumatic loss or some trauma you experienced or, um, a different kind of just a death loss, even if it was your aging grandparents and that wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, an out of order death, I think when, bad things, hard things, scary things happen to us that really sets us in this sense of, as you said, sort of being victim. And that's where I think a lot of our stuckness can happen in our grief is because we don't know how to 
move forward. And by the way, I mean, not to go nerdy, but there's a lot of science that happens too, like our entire nervous, like there's a lot of things that are happening because we are not meant to just be passive recipients. We're supposed to be sort of engaged in our own self-protection, right? So I love the idea. And those things can be, say, those things early on can be taking a shower. You know, like deciding to get out of bed that day can be your agency. It doesn't necessarily mean performing a ritual or saying yes to, you know, (laughs) going dating again if you're a widow or widower. It can be the little things too. Um, Because because taking a shower is is saying even though you don't want to, it's saying that you are you you have some faith in in life because it's important that you don't smell bad. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But if you, if you're hopeless, then you don't need to take a shower. You've lost all hope. You're in despair. But if you're taking a shower, you're engaging in life on some level. Right. And, uh, and that there's some built in hope that you, that, you know, fake it if you fake it till you make it. Right. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're in life. Yeah. 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 I love that. You know, one of the, as we wind towards the end of our conversation, one of the, um, I don't, it was a whole chapter on despair, but one of the things that really struck me is, um, you know, you wrote this chapter on despair and then you admitted very vulnerably, like that was a really hard, sort of an ironic time for you because you were Mm -hmm. really in the steps of despair. And I resonated because I just had finished writing my book, Grief is a Stinky Bitch. And literally the last chapter I had to write right when I got diagnosed with breast cancer was allowing the book chapter on allowing people to help you which is not my usual. And I knew like, well, this journey means I'm going to have to like, and I just remember like, I literally, again, I'm also atheist and, but I looked up at the the universal sky and said like, really, I get it. Okay. Like, I know this is my work to do right now. Thanks for making me write this chapter right now. What, what did you, do you share a little bit about sort of why you wanted to write a chapter on despair and then even what it was like for you to be grappling with despair as you were trying to share this wisdom with us. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my, my chapters, a lot of them have rather bleak titles, (laughs) right? There's fear, despair, rage, ritual, you know, ritual. Yes. There's holidays, which actually is bleak. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds uplifting, but the holidays are rough. So, yeah. But, um, but, uh, but the last chapter was going to be meaning and purpose. Yeah. And I had read a number of grief books in my early grief that that they were so rosy, <laughs> I got angry. It tried to it tried to wrap it all up in a neat little bow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is how, and then then you're all better. Ta-da. And I and I was like, ah, <laughs> no! And I threw it across the floor, <laughs> threw it across the room. Um, and I encountered many people who said that they've thrown yeah. grief books across the room. Oh. It's such a strange thing, like. Done it. Why not just put it down? No, no. I actually threw it across, and I did. I've a thrown several across the floor room, but um, uh, and so I I wanted to be honest. Uh, I wrote this book uh, in pretty in pretty early grief, um, and so within the first you know two and a half years after the crash, really, and um, and I wanted to honor that. I didn't want to like you know, and then the last chapter is da da, and you're all set. <laughs> Yeah. And, I, and so I was like, well, I want to honor that you're going to slip back into despair. It's going to keep coming. Yeah. <laughs> um, but hopefully each time it'll be a little less rough and, and you'll be able to weather it a little more as time goes by because it, you'll, you know, gotten used to it and, and yeah. found, found ways of, um, of holding on to life, even, even as despair is, is, is getting you. Um, 
but uh, but then I, I was hit with despair, like you said, when I was writing that chapter. Um, uh, it, it was right around the kids' birthdays, I think. Is that right? Now I don't, now I don't remember so. what what yeah, what horror yes. what I, horror was no, striking me. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. It was around that. Yeah. It was yeah. their it was their birthdays, and it's like, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do I get through this? Um, and uh, and feeling kind of debilitated by it. Um, uh, but then trusting, I think, I think the trust in life part, um, is such an important component, which the rituals help. Um, the idea that I'm going to do this because I'm going to trust that by staying engaged with my grief and staying engaged with my community and my feelings, I'm going to, it's going to allow me to get out of despair, uh, and back into life. Uh, yeah, you know, holding my grief with me. Yeah. Well, and one of the things about despair among the many emotions that we experience and states that we experience is when it shows up, it's very sneaky because it makes you think it's always been there and it will always be there. Despair right. is a really manipulative son of a gun. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so yes. I think, I think I appreciated your honesty and vulnerability. And you even mentioned that in a book, like it felt like despair showed up and it's always going to be here. And all I will say to you, if you're in your first or second or third round of despair is try to write when you come out of it, try to write what you feel afterwards so that you can remember mm. yourself. I've been in despair and I've come out of it again. And so that's what we always need to remind ourselves, but it's hard to remember in it because despair is really a manipulative, you know, <laughs> piece yeah. of work. Right. Yeah. It's a very scary place to be it uh, is. in despair yeah. because it's a, Despair means that there you have no hope, um, and you're, so in a moment of hopelessness, life feels unendurable. But uh, but as you say, it passes. Uh, if does. only people yeah. could just <laughs> just trust that it's going to pass. Yeah. Be in a and very hang on. Place. Allow somebody on. to witness your despair. Allow you to get fake to make take a step. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just remembered, I said, hold me accountable. And before oh, right. we wrap up, your one-man show. So um, we're yes. recording this just as you're about to wrap up your one-man show. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about it and like what compelled you to write, yes. to do it? Yeah. Yeah. So so it's called Grief, A One-Man Shit Show. <laughs> um, Perfect title. Um, <laughs> but uh, I started writing it, uh, I started writing it about a week after the car crash. So very, very early on, I suddenly was like, I need to talk about this. If this is such a crazy thing that's happening to me and I have so many feelings about it, I just need to write it down. And, and, and I thought it would be like a stand-up routine. I thought it'd be like the world's darkest stand-up routine ever. That was like in my mind. Yeah. And that, that sort of anger helped fuel it. Right. And I started writing it and, and right away it had this arc. It had this arc of rage turning into despair, turning into like understanding and then just kept kept getting longer and longer and more and more. I had more and more things to say about grief and grieving. Uh, um, and, uh, and Gail read it right, right away and said, I love it. Keep writing. And I just kept yeah. writing. Yeah. Sorry about that. So, and, um, and so I wrote it first before I wrote the book and I, I was actually going to perform it. Uh, I was literally, I had a, I had a theater book. I had no idea how it would be received. It's a dark piece, but there's a lot of humor, a lot of humor, yeah. and and there's a lot of hope, I think, ultimately. But but it goes there. It's triggering. <laughs> yeah, it goes yeah. into details about grief. So yeah. uh, I didn't know how it would be received, 
So I booked a, a small theater. It was actually called the Ruby Theater uh, in, in, uh, on Santa Monica Boulevard. Um, and I had about 50 friends come. And it was, and it was uh, on a Thursday night. And then Tuesday night before that, I had to cancel because of COVID. Because uh, everything was shutting down. So it was literally two done. days away. And I had to say, I, we can't do it because yeah. all theaters are closed. <laughs> um, and so then uh, we, I, the world went into lockdown and I started writing the book. Yeah. I just still had this need, right? This need to yeah. express and process and understand and like share. Um, and I wrote the book and then, the, and then the pandemic, you know, lifted ish. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> just opened back up again. Uh, and I was like, I, I want to, I still want to perform this piece. It's yeah. now it's, now it's old. It was, yeah. it's a, it's the snapshot of very fresh grief. And now it's, you know, three years later since I wrote it, um, almost four years since the crash. And, uh, and now I've been performing it. And, um, and it's, I, I think it's um, had a lot of beautiful impact on people. I have a lot of people in my audience who are grieving. Yeah. They come, they find my show and they come. And yeah. um, so I always know that there are multiple people in every audience that have lost children, siblings, parents, best friends, every show. There's a lot of grief. Um, and, and people find it very helpful that someone is articulating all this ugly stuff, the tough yeah, stuff. Yeah. All the, all the shit they feel. Yeah. 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 All the things that nobody really talks about because it's not so flattering. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the happy, shiny, toxic positivity right. language that we like to see about the world. Do you think given that you're now performing it, you know, as you said, three to four years out versus mm. if you had performed it then, have you stopped yes. to think about the difference of either oh, in the yeah. performance, but also for yourself? What do you think is? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think when I was going to initially do it, it would have been a terrible show. <laughs> I was so close to it. You were all. so in it. Yeah. yeah. I was so actively grieving as I was performing it that it was really, I think probably kind of torture. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and now I, I can actually perform it. Um, I think in, in a way that feels much safer for the audience. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're not worried. In my say, they're yeah. not worried. I'm going to fall apart. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and I find it, I find it in a way I, I describe it as sort of, publicly mourning. It's another ritual. Yeah. Um, I actually performed it on Ruby, both Ruby and Hart's birthdays this, this past, uh, in, in the end of, end of March. And that was a way for me to honor them and get through those days. You know, how am I going to get through their birthdays? You know, yeah. um, what am I going to do? What ritual am I going to perform? that's going to help me. And I thought, Oh, I'll do the show. You know, yeah. I talk about Ruby and Hart in the show a lot. And, yeah. um, I tell, I tell some funny, beautiful stories about them and, felt good. That's phenomenal. You do in the book as well. And I, as I said to you, I think maybe off air before we got on, maybe I said it on air. Hmm. You, I feel like you really helped let us see into r both Ruby and Hart's lives and their wicked sense of humor and their <laughs> profound wisdom. I mean, Hart's, you know, bat mitzvah passage and Harsh, portion yeah. was profound and Ruby's art and her website that she set up. Y'all need to read this book, finding the words. I mean, besides helping feel seen and accompanied in your grief, besides helping you find the words, I feel like you really modeled such a beautiful way of holding and bringing forward their memory and their life and the wisdom that they mm -hmm. continue to teach you yeah. still, you know, to this day in ways that we all might think about as we carry our loved ones forward too. So yeah, I appreciate it.
Thank you. Colin, thank, thank you. you so much for joining me on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, y'all. <laughs> Go out and get yourself a copy of Finding the Words. I always say try That's to nice. shop your local bookstore if you can. Um, support your local bookstore, but wherever you can yeah. get a copy, please do. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.